lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota, and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. Ethan Kaufman is on the show today. Ethan's the director at Stone Lee, America's newest public garden, and we're talking all about this exciting addition to our nation's collection of public gardens. Plus, I got the chance to talk plants with Ethan. That was exciting, and not surprisingly, I learned a ton from him, which means hopefully you will too. You're going to love hearing Ethan's thoughts on his favorite plants, how to use more natives in your landscape, and his choices for perennials that shine in different seasons. And it all can be found on the grounds of Stone Lee. By way of background, for over 80 years, Stone Lee was the home of the Haas family. But in 2016, they generously donated the property to natural lands for preservation and public enjoyment. Located next to Villanova University, Stone Lee features some incredible and distinguished trees, gorgeous pathways, and verdant gardens. What's more, it's been developed in the shadows of some pretty esteemed landscape architects over the past century, including Charles H. Miller, who trained at Kew, George Pentecost Jr., he's the son of the missionary and evangelist Reverend George Frederick Pentecost, and was a founding member of the ASLA, the American Society of Landscape Architects. Ferruccio Vitale, who created the country estate landscape of Skylands and played an integral role for the magnificent magnificent Longwood Gardens in Pennsylvania. And according to author Terry Schnadelbach, who wrote Ferruccio Vitale, Landscape Architect of the Country Place Era, he is America's forgotten landscape architect. And finally, the Olmsted brothers, the sons of Frederick Law Olmsted, who is regarded as the father of American landscape architecture. Now, a main priority at Stone Lee is to showcase the beauty of native plants in a garden setting. Something entomologist Doug Tallamy is a huge advocate for. And as luck would have it, he's on the board of directors at Natural Lands, so his input is readily accessible. As a result, Stone Lee is an impressive role model for home gardeners, showing how a native garden can be created to stunning effect. Stone Lee's opening weekend is this weekend, Mother's Day weekend, May 12th and 13th. But if you can't make it, never fear. This garden will be free of charge and open to the public year-round. It's truly a special place. Stone Lee, America's newest public garden, plus an in-depth chat with Ethan Kaufman about his vision and the plants he loves most in the garden. That's the topic of today's show, and it's coming up after an update on the listener community for the show and this week's Garden News Roundup. 
Well, welcome everyone to the Still Growing Podcast. I'd like to thank you for listening if you're a first-time listener and welcome you if you're a returning listener. And I always start the show out by saying that I hope that you're listening to many different gardening podcasts. This past month, Garden Media Group released their list for the best gardening podcasts of 2018. I thought I'd share their list with you and give you some ideas for additional gardening podcasts that you can be listening to. In addition to Still Growing, they listed A Way to Garden, hosted by Margaret Roach, one of my personal favorites, Plant Rama with C.L. Fornari and Ellen Zakos, excellent podcast, You Bet Your Garden with Mike McGrath, another one of my personal favorites, Slow Flowers with Deborah Prinzing. Deborah started the slow flower movement back in 2008, so she's a true subject matter expert on this topic. In Defense of Plants with Matt Candeas, I love his voice and his show. Jane Perrone's podcast is called On the Ledge, and it is excellent, and Jane talks all about houseplants. And I have to say, I've learned a ton about plants in general just from listening to Jane's show. Plus, you get the treat of listening to her wonderful accent. You get to feel like you've just spent a little bit of time in England. So that's also fantastic. Then finally on the list is a brand new podcast called Hot House, and it's by Leah Cherner. Hot House is a podcast about design, ecology, and the way we garden now. And Leah recently interviewed one of my favorite people, Jenny Peterson. So you have to check that out. And just a reminder that if you want to have a nice variety of gardening podcasts, then you need to support gardening podcasts by listening to them. So definitely check out Hot House. Let's send some love Leah's way. And I guarantee you that if you listen to gardening podcasts on a regular basis, you will become a better gardener. Also, just want to give a quick shout out to Garden Media Group, Katie Dubow, for putting this list together. Garden Media Group does great quality work in the gardening space. And putting together a list of gardening podcasts is such a great way to help gardeners grow and to support garden podcasts. So thank you for that, Garden Media Group. In any case, I'm truly, sincerely honored that you're spending some time here listening to the Still Growing Podcast. I'd also like to invite you to join the listener community for the show. This is a free private Facebook group that I host for listeners of the show, and you can find it just by typing in the name of the group in the search bar the next time you're in Facebook. Just type in Still Growing Podcast Group in the search bar, and our group will pop right up. There are a number of benefits to joining. First, you'll have access to all of the garden articles that I share with the group. They're really designed to help you become a better gardener, a more informed gardener. Second, the group is the only place I go to pick lucky listeners for my show giveaways. The last episode of Still Growing, episode 606, featured Mark Highland and his brand new book, Practical Organic Gardening. It's fantastic. It's comprehensive. And the winner of that giveaway is Sonia Chaco Jaslow. So congratulations, Sonia. You're going to love getting a copy of Mark's book. And in order to claim your prize, just send me an email at jennifer at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. 
and I'll make sure to get you a copy of Mark Highland's Practical Organic Gardening. Congratulations again, Sonia. In addition to winning giveaways from the show, another reason to join the Facebook group for the show is that you do get a chance to interact with the great guests that have been on the show, like Mark Highland, like Jody McKee, herbalist, like Rick Sherman. He's an expert on schoolyard gardens like home chef Anna Thomas, author of Vegan Vegetarian Omnivore, and Tara Nolan, author of The Raised Bed Revolution. Finally, the content that I share with the listener community is something I work very hard to make sure is helpful and worthwhile for you. Everything I post is curated with you in mind to help you and your garden grow. So check it out. The next time you're in Facebook, just type in Still Growing Podcast Group and our group will pop right up. Just request to join. We'll admit you into the group and then I'd love to see your garden and hear what's on your mind. All right, it's time to welcome new members to our listener community. Stephanie Smith, Bresley Snipes, Jessica Stewart, Ron Robbins, Mary Emmerich Cooper, John Neville, Oleg Leontovich, Shelley Baxter Hoffman, Rebecca Hauge, Vincent Paletta, Jessica Walliser. Jessica's a fantastic garden writer, and she recently published a book called Container Gardening Complete. It's great for Mother's Day, by the way. In any case, I did an interview with Jessica. That will be coming up later this spring as well. And finally, Alex Gilbert. Welcome, you guys. Also, I'd like to give a special shout out to Angie Bear. Angie's a new member to our group and she wrote this week, thank you for adding me to your group. I found the podcast today and I enjoy it so much. I live in Southeast Minnesota and right now there's not much blooming. After an eternal winter, I hear you, Angie, the temps warmed up and the daffodils and tulips are now breaking the ground. Dahlia tubers are planted. And while not pretty, these babies needed to go in. And that's about it. Happy to be in the group. Well, we're happy to have you, Angie. Welcome to the listener community. I look forward to hearing more about your garden journey. Just a reminder, there's a phone number for the show if you want to get in touch. You can call 865-333-GROW or 865-333-4769. I'd love to hear your voice. Or you can always email me at jennifer at sixfootmama.com. All right, now it's time for the Garden News Roundup. This is a curated group of posts and articles that I've shared over the past week with the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group. And it's made up of a dozen different segments. Now, what's nice about this for you is that you get to stay pretty informed about what's going on in the world of horticulture and gardening just by listening to this part of the show each week. And you can easily check out these articles and posts for yourself because I share all of it with the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group. So if you hear something and you want to read the full article, there's no need to take notes or track down links. Just head on over to the group and join. All right, I wanted to kick things off here with a guest update and let you know about a new thing I created in Twitter for listeners of the show. If you go over and follow my profile over at The Six Foot Mama, so I think it's The Underscore Six Foot Mama over at Twitter, you'll see that there is a list that I've created that has most of the guests that have been on Still Growing. Now, if a guest of the show is a heavy-duty Twitter poster, 
So they're really sending out a large number of posts in a single day. Those folks I have not included in this list because their posts will just flood the feed and you won't get to see enough variety from the different guests that are on Twitter. So if they're just a normal, moderate amount of posting going on, they're included in the list. And what's nice about this for you is let's say that you're kind of overwhelmed when you go over to Twitter. There's just too much information. Well, this way you can just check this list of guests that have been on the show. And if you enjoy the guests that have been on the show, you should enjoy this Twitter feed because it's all gardening related. And these folks do such a wonderful job of sharing what they're discovering and what they're up to on Twitter. And it's really interesting. So it's one of the ways that I curate information for you guys for the guest update segment of the show, especially. But it's also fun just to kind of check back in with folks and see what's going on, see what they're finding and discovering and learning about. And it's one of the ways that I like to continue to grow and learn as a gardener as well. So I wanted to share that with you. Just head on over to Twitter and search for my profile, Six Foot Mama. You'll find me and you'll find the show information, things that I'm posting about the show. But also check for this list and it's called Guess and then it's hashtag still growing. So it'll be obvious to you when you get over there, just look for that list. I think there's about 40, 50 guests that are in that group that I'm following on Twitter. If a guest of the show is not on Twitter, obviously they're not going to be in that list. But if they've been on the show and they post solid content, you'll find the guests of the show in that group. And I think it'll be really helpful for you. So there you go. Check that out. All right, in sustainability, there was something that was shared over at Monarch Joint Venture that I wanted to draw your attention to. Monarch Joint Venture's goal is to help conserve the monarch butterfly migration. So they put together this brand new handout that you can download. And the handout is all about why you should grow and sell native milkweed. So the handout provides the public, gardeners, and plant growers and nurseries with a concise description of the importance of native milkweeds and their value to monarchs and the plant industry. And then there's tips in there about how to overcome barriers to growing milkweed, resources that you can look at for if you want to do more reading about it, examples of native milkweeds, because of course, there's more than just one variety. So check that out. It's a fantastic resource and you can download it for you know free it's it's completely free and it's very very good you know another suggestion that I'd have for you is if you have a nursery that's very active and dedicated to helping conserve monarchs print this out and bring it to them I'm sure they'd appreciate getting the information from you All right, over in continuing ed, gardendesign.com shared a great post. And this was called the nine spring wildflowers for planting in your garden. And it caught my attention because there were two that are on my personal list this year. One of them is bloodroot and the other is trout lily. Those are two specimens that I'd love to include in my own garden. In addition to trillium, beautiful trillium, shooting star, another one of my favorites, Dutchman's breeches, wild columbine. I've got that all over the garden, whether I want it or not, but it is pretty this time of year, I have to say. Uh, Let's see here. Also on the list, Virginia bluebells, gorgeous, and dwarf crested iris, love iris, and love these pale purple and blue irises. Oh my gosh, they're my favorite. 
Okay, also in Continuing Ed is this great post from our friends over at Story Publishing, and it was written by one of my favorite guests of the show, Barbara Pleasant. Always love chatting with Barbara. She's so knowledgeable. Anyway, she wrote a post for them, and it's called Top Crops to Grow for Fermentation. Fermentation is so hot right now. Very, very, very in vogue to be looking into that. And Barbara experiments, so I love that. So she speaks from experience. She knows what she She's doing, and this is an excellent post on fermentation. So this is the post that was by Story Publishing. Again, it's called Top Crops to Grow for Fermentation. And she goes through a number of things that you may not even think about. Snap peas, shell peas, crunchy kohlrabi, all the carrots, spicy radishes, a great, great post on fermentation, a great way to kind of dip your toe into the water if you're thinking about it, or dip your toe into the vinegar, depending on how you want to look at it. All right, finally, in Mother Earth News, they shared a great post that was called How to Add Fragrance to Your Garden or Balcony with Herbs. You know, herbs are such a great way to get started as a gardener. If you have not grown herbs, let me just tell you that you can start your garden by growing an herb garden and you will feel so successful because they're tough and easy to grow. And as this article points out, so much fragrance, so gorgeously fragrant. It's wonderful. It was just in a nursery yesterday over at Heidi's Grow House, Heidi Highlands Nursery in Corcoran, Minnesota, one of my personal favorites. And I love seeing the transformation that Heidi is doing over there because she bought this nursery. It used to be the old Lawn King in Corcoran and and Heidi bought it. And now it's called Grow House, the German spelling, G-R-O-W and then H-A-U-S. So the German spelling for house. Anyway, I love what she's doing. She's making a complete transformation over there. And one of the cool things that she had this year that I noticed yesterday is a basil tree. It's a tree that's growing sweet basil. Oh my gosh, you guys, it was so fragrant. It was wonderful. And I'm going to buy it. I'm going to buy actually a couple of them. But I'm honestly, I'm waiting for it to warm up. I have a hard and fast rule for myself. I do not buy plants for my garden until May 10th. Forget it, not going to happen. So I'm staying strong this year and I'm pretty proud of myself for not succumbing. So I got to wait a couple of days and then I'll be back over at Heidi's and I'm going to get myself a couple of those trees. They're just so cool. They look like a little topiary. Then they've got sweet basil all over them and you just want to pass out. I shared it over on my Instagram if you want to check that out. I think it's also on Twitter. So while you're checking out that group of past guests of the show, just check out my Twitter feed. I think you can see that post that I shared on Instagram. I'm a complete Instagram newbie. I don't do a great job of posting over there. It's one of my goals for 2018 to get better at Instagram. And one of the ways I'm going to do that is just by taking pictures of flowers. That's all I'm going to do. Take pictures of flowers, share them on Instagram. And then as I get my Instagram mojo going, hopefully I'll get better at it and I can start sharing more in-depth content over there as well. All right. I wanted to share with you for the how-to DIY segment... This is a post I saw just this morning, and it was from someone who was over at the Garden Bloggers Fling down in Austin, Texas. I had to miss it this year. I had too much going on with the kids. I've got a senior graduating. I know I've mentioned it before, but oh man, you guys, it is so top of mind for me. Okay. Anyway, let me get back to this. Jim Charlier shared a post this morning that caught my attention. I was just staring at this picture. I'm like, are you kidding me? It is gorgeous. What really makes 
this picture special is that it is a reflection shot. This is a photo of a serene pond or water feature, just completely still water. And across the way, on the other side, is this beautiful orange urn must be some type of water feature. And there's all kinds of gorgeous plant specimens and water plants and things like that all around it. There's a gorgeous brick wall. The color is amazing. But what I really appreciated about Jim's post is that this is not just a beautiful picture. Jim is sharing how he took the picture. And you'll be blown away when you see it because he took this picture with his iPhone. I tell you what, these iPhones can capture just some amazing images. Sometimes my iPhone does a better job than my actual camera. Ah, that always frustrates me. But I tell you what, you just can't fight it. They, they just do such a nice job. Here's what Jim said, though, about taking reflection shots in the garden, especially if you're working in an area with water. Here's what he wrote. He said, with the camera so very near the edge on an iPhone, meaning it's up in the corner. If you just look at your phone, you'll see that the camera is right in that corner. He says, getting the lens as close to the water as you can without getting it wet or dropping it. So hold on tight you can get great reflection shots. And you can totally see that in this image. The image is fantastic. I give it a 10. Scratch that. I give it a 12. It's amazing. So check that out. It's Jim's tip. And he caught this at the Garden Blogger Fling down in Austin, Texas in a private garden. Oh, just a beautiful photo and a great tip on taking pictures with water in your garden. Finally, the English Garden showed a great post on how to build a rockery. So imagine you're on a property and you've got unwanted bricks, tiles, paving slabs, things like that. And you're wondering, what am I going to do with all this? Or maybe you've just been collecting this stuff over the years and you're not sure what you're ever going to do with it. You maybe had plans and then you scratched them. You just don't know. Well, you can build a rockery. I tell you what, Jan Johnson, my guest who wrote The Spirit of Stone, a fantastic book, would approve of this project. And this was a great article with great images to inspire you. And I think rockeries are awesome because what they do when you're creating a garden with so much stone material, you're in essence creating a microclimate because those rocks are going to hold and trap that heat near the ground and plants love growing next to rocks. Just love it. In addition, it's such a great way to draw in earthworms. Of course, they love living under rocks and all the microbial activity. If you see worms, you've got microbial activity, then you have healthy soil. It's fantastic. So building a rockery, so many wonderful benefits. Check out this post. It'll talk to you about finding the perfect location, what rocks to use, how you're going to build it, how you're going to prepare the site. Lots of great information there. All right. Finally, in the plant spotlight, there are two things I wanted to share with you this week. First is this crown imperial fritillaria. Oh my gosh, wait till you see this picture. This was a gorgeous post that was shared in The Guardian and there is a beautiful picture of it that was shared by plant hunter Tom Hart Dyke. 
Fritillarias are these spring bulbs and the flowers are just to die for. The post that was written was about the world garden at Lullingstone Castle. And they said, by far and away, the most seductive plant in this garden is the crown imperial lily. And it's also known as the Tears of Mary, which just really grabbed my heart. I thought, oh my goodness, when you see it, you'll get it because it's red. And then the center has this beautiful white stamen. Oh my goodness, it's just so striking. So you can see why it's called the Crown Imperial or the Tears of Mary. Perfect. All right. And then also Mandy, can you dig it? shared about a new dwarf walnut that you can actually grow in containers, which yay, because of course, you know, walnuts are difficult or are a challenge in the garden as my friend Frau Zinni, Jen McGinnis, can attest to. She's a black walnut growing in her backyard and, you know, the chemicals that they release make the soil unsuitable for so many garden plants. But if you can grow a dwarf walnut in a container, well... There you go. You got it. So this one is called the Dwarf Carlic Walnut. And Mandy wrote that it only reaches 1.8 meters. Let me translate that feet here. Let's take a look. Or 5.9 feet. So just under six feet tall. That's a definitely a dwarf walnut. So there you go. It says the dwarf carlic fruits ripen in a grape-like fashion, always two to six together. So there's like a little bunch of them. That's great. They're medium-sized, about three centimeters long. The shells can easily be cracked. Another bonus here. They're clean at the seam and the nuts can be removed as a whole. This one ripens in the second half of September. You can eat them fresh or store them. And apparently the harvest is pretty decent. So there you go. In the news, there were a number of things that made the news segment for the Garden News Roundup this week. The first was this post over at the BBC that made me smile. And the title of it was called, Exam Revision Students Should Smell Rosemary for Memory. So the exam season is upon us. The kids are all taking MCA's map tests over here in the United States. And across the pond, they're doing the same thing. And apparently there was a study that found that pupils or students, I love that they say pupils, uh, students working in a room with the aroma of rosemary in the form of an essential oil, did 5 to 7% better in memory tests. So there you go. And I love that because rosemary, of course, is the herb for remembrance. That's the herb that I plant every spring in my containers out on my deck. I want to see those rosemary plants. I'll be harvesting them yet at Thanksgiving time when God has freeze-dried them for me out on the deck here in Minnesota. And every time I plant my flat of rosemary, for every plant that I plant, I remember someone, a friend or a family member that's passed away. Rosemary is the herb for remembrance and that's my little tribute. So nice little tradition. And once I discovered that about rosemary, it just became something that I do every spring. All right. Also in the news, Combermere Abbey has this amazing bluebell walk that they offer in the spring. This past year, it was on the 29th of April. And you just would not believe the pictures from this thousand acre country estate in Cheshire. It's amazing. 
People have said it's an ethereal experience walking through the carpets of bluebells. So that's on my bucket list. Some spring, I'm going to get there and take this bluebell walk. All right. Finally, in the news, Q Gardens Temperate House has reopened, complete with 15,000 panes of glass that have been replaced in this amazing greenhouse, along with intricate ironwork and paved flooring. One of the things I appreciated most about this article, and again, this was over at Mandy Can You Dig It, was all the pictures. Just so incredible to see all of this work here that's been done. It's also the home for some of the world's rarest plants. It gave a quote from the Kew Gardens Director of Horticulture, Richard Barley, and he said, this is world-class horticulture here over at Temperate House. People come from all over to visit Temperate House every year. So if you get a chance to check that out, you really should. I'm sure it's absolutely amazing to see. And again, that one's on my bucket list as well. All right, finally in the news, global artichoke consumption is on the rise. Now, why would that be? Well, Here's what they say. Think about this. The frozen vegetable market has a current value of over 25 million as of 2016. By 2023, that value is expected to rise to 35 million. The fastest growing segment of the frozen food industry are the ready-made meals and the frozen vegetables. And people are looking for healthy, minimally processed and natural food. And artichokes, beautiful artichokes with their natural appearance and no preservatives added are an appealing end product for people to buy. So there you go. Global artichoke consumption on the rise. Try growing some in your own garden. If not to eat, then for sure for their ornamental value because they're beautiful in the garden. In the dream guest segment this week is Brent Preston. Foodandwine.com featured him in an article called Seven Tips for Growing Vegetables in the City. So, of course, I had to sit down and read this. And then I realized that Brent has written a new book called The New Farm. And I love what it says about his backstory here. It said this, When Brent Preston and his wife Jillian decided to ditch Toronto and move to a farm in 2003, they had no experience as farmers. They felt disillusioned at work for a while, questioning the idea that the ideal modern progressive career involves sitting at a desk for eight hours every day. So with their two young children in tow, they found a farmhouse and 100 acres of land in the town of Cremor. Cut to 10 years later, and that farm, called the New Farm, is thriving. Brent and his family don't just live a peaceful, contented life on their land. They're making a living doing it too, selling heirloom potatoes, beets, and salad greens. So his new book, The New Farm, by the same name as his farm, came out here on March 27th. So I'm going to get it and read it. I think it sounds fascinating. I would love to hear about this transition that his family made to farming. Plus, I love reading the thoughts of folks who are hyper aware of the growth that they're going through. And nobody appreciates more the wonder of growing than a new gardener. So I'm looking forward to checking that out. 
All right, in Science This Week was a great article that was featured in twonewthings.com. What I liked about it is that when we talk about pollination, we often think about bees. But beyond insects, mammals, birds, and reptiles play big roles in the pollination of flowering plants. And that's what this article is talking about. They talked about nectar-eating bats and birds. In fact, they point out that in isolated environments like islands, birds can be responsible for at least 10% of flower pollination. And I love what it says here at the very end. It says, as humans become more appreciative of how insect pollinators help keep ecosystems alive, this research shows that we need to also consider the bigger bodied pollinators as well. So keep that in mind. Finally, in science, this was a post that I had shared a while ago, but I love this post. And this is also drawing attention to something that's maybe not so top of mind for us, and that is moths. The title of this article was called Working the Night Shift, and it was featured over at nwf.org. Like the previous article, this article is talking about how moths play key roles in garden habitats, and they're far more abundant than the beautiful daytime flying butterflies that we see in our gardens. Just like butterflies, moths are pollinators as well. When other insects go to sleep, moths work the night shift. They often visit some of the same flowers as daytime pollinators, but then they also visit the night-blooming plants that daytime flyers miss. I learned so much from this article about moths. Not only are they surprisingly diverse in their coloration, they're not just brown, but the fact that moths, everything from moth caterpillars all the way to moths, feed so many different wildlife species and they're masters of disguise. And then finally, the article wraps up with this little tip sheet on how to attract and nurture moths. From planting a diverse amount of plant species in your garden to being a lazy gardener. Leave your leaves and vegetation up in the garden because that is habitat for moths. Great post. All right, it's time for the shopping segment, one of my favorites. There's so much to cover in shopping this week. First, the National Garden Bureau is having a wonderful new gardening book giveaway over at their website. So just head on over to National Garden Bureau. They're giving away 10 brand new gardening books. They look fantastic. So check that out. The University of Minnesota Bee Lab is having their annual get-together. This is a dinner with live auction. You don't have to dress fancy. You can dress fun. It's over at the McNamara Center at the University of Minnesota. I'll be there. So if you want to meet up at this event, just request to sit at my table. Tickets for this are $125, but $77 is basically a donation. So you get to write that off. And it's such a great program. The B-Lab and its B-Squad program over at the University of Minnesota. There was a post that was featured in ecologyisnotadirtyword.com. Great website name. And it featured the work of Robert Patterson. He was a remarkable naturalist that most people have never even heard of. In 1838, 
he published a little book that was called Letters on the Natural History of the Insects Mentioned in Shakespeare's Plays. Now, this sweet little book consists of 12 papers that were read aloud on public nights held at the Belfast Society's Museum during the 1830s. During these public evenings, folks would come to listen to experts talk science. This book is part literary analysis, part entomology text, and part ode to natural history. Anyway, I loved this blog post so much that I went out to Amazon and I typed in letters on the natural history of the insects mentioned in Shakespeare's plays. And I managed to get a copy. It's not an original, but it's a copy of this old book from 1838. And it was under five bucks. So I'm looking forward to getting it. And I thought the pictures and the illustrations looked amazing as well. All right, finally in shopping, Story Publishing always features this list of ebooks that they pick that are on sale. And so this month's ebooks that are $2.99 or less include Recipes from the Herbalist Kitchen, great little book, Backyard Foraging, 65 Familiar Plants You Didn't Know You Could Eat. That's $2.99 as well. For $1.99, you can get the Vegetable Gardener's Container Bible. You can also get the Vegetable Gardener's Answer Book. And then finally, a book called Attracting Native Pollinators. So I've shared that link in our group as well. But you can get these fantastic books for, I mean, just a small fraction of their hardcover or paperback price. So for less than $3, you can get any one of those books. Just fantastic. Such a great deal for shopping. And if you like to read on e-readers, you're going to love that deal. So I always check that website, check that particular page over at Story Publishing because it always has these wonderful book roundups every single month with ebooks that are less than $3. Such a great deal. In recipes, there was a post that was featured in livingherbs.com, and this was called How to Make Dandelion Pesto. It's an amazing spring tonic, and of course, I love pesto, so I might actually give this one a try this spring. Of course, there are so many known benefits, health benefits to eating dandelion leaves. And don't forget, if you're going to do anything like this, you need to be absolutely certain that no chemicals have been sprayed on these dandelions. So make sure to take caution if you're harvesting dandelion leaves in your area. All right, in inspiration this week, the newphytologist.org blog shared a post that I thought was just so inspiring. First of all, the whole point of the post was to introduce Herbaria 3.0. It's a collaborative digital environmental humanities project, and it gives a platform for sharing the stories of plants and people. So definitely check it out, Herbaria 3.0. But in addition to that, I wanted to read this very inspiring paragraph that was featured in this post that I just fell in love with. It said this, 
We believe that such storytelling fosters sustained engagement with the green world. It also acts as a counter to plant blindness or the inability to see the plants around us in our everyday lives. Over time, this condition renders us insensitive to both the autonomous lives of plants and to the deeply textured sociocultural history of plant-human interactions. Accordingly, if we can't see the plants that are around us every day, the trees that shade the sidewalks, the lavender that feeds the bees, the houseplant that has crawled across the windowpane, we also can't see that plants are essential to our everyday lives in both material and non-material ways. Perhaps most significantly, though, our inability to see plants locally renders us blind to the significant consequences of human action on plant communities globally. Wow, really, really loved that. Actually, there's so much in this post that's fantastic. They show this image of plants that were collected by Mary Treat in 1877 in the St. John's River in Florida. And they talk about what herbaria also means because the word herbaria also refers to the libraries where plant specimens are kept. Anyway, so much goodness here. Make sure to check out Herbaria 3.0. The next time you're online, you just won't regret it. It's just wonderful. All right, now it's time for quotables. And in honor of today's show featuring Stone Lee, I picked quotes that were related to natural gardens or native plants. Here we go. This first one is by Roz Creasy, Earthly Delights, 1985. If you want to convert your lawn to a woodland, you are trying to compress a long evolutionary process into a few short years. You will have to make some compromises. Here's a fun one from Joy Busloff, Wisconsin gardener, quoted in Homefront, Where the Wild Things Are by Rebecca Lowell, The Wall Street Journal, August 21st, 1998. If the only thing that moves in your backyard is a lawnmower, it's time to plant natives. Here's one from landscape designer Jens Jensen, who lived from 1860 to 1950. There are two reasons why I turned away from the formal style that employed foreign plants. The first reason was an increasing dissatisfaction with both the plants and the unyielding design. I suppose dissatisfaction with things as they are is always a fundamental cause of revolt. And the second was that I was becoming more and more appreciative of the beauty and decorative quality of the native flora of this country. Here's one from Walt Whitman, Mullins and Mullins, Specimen Days, 1882. The farmers, I find, think the mullen a mean, unworthy weed, but I have grown to a fondness for it. 
Every object has its lesson, enclosing the suggestion of everything else. And lately, I sometimes think all is concentrated for me in these hardy, yellow-flowered weeds. As I come down the lane early in the morning, I pause before their soft, wool-like fleece and stem and broad leaves glittering with countless diamonds. Annually, for three summers now, they and I have silently returned together. As such long intervals, I stand and sit among them, musing, wand-woven with the rest of so many hours and moods of partial rehabilitation, of my sane or sick spirit, here as near at peace as it can be. Well, that's the Garden News Roundup for this week's show. Just a reminder, you can get all of these posts with links and bonus content in your Facebook feed if you join the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group. I'd love to meet you in the group. With that, let's transition to the topic of today's show, Stone Lee, America's newest public garden, plus an in-depth chat with Ethan Kaufman about his vision and the plants he loves most in the garden. After nearly two years of planning and preparations, Stone Lee, a natural garden, is about to open to the public, and it's a very exciting addition to our country's public spaces. Stone Lee has a rich and fascinating history. One of the first mentions of Stone Lee appears in the Memorial History of the City of Philadelphia. Edmund Smith, a son of Philadelphia, had married socialite Arabella Barnes, and he worked his entire life from the age of 18 at the Pennsylvania Railroad, ultimately becoming treasurer and then vice president. In 1877, when he was 48 years old, Edmund purchased 65 acres of land in Villanova, and built a residence on Spring Mill Road. On July 31st, 1895, at the age of 66, Edmund passed away while on a business trip in New York. It was reported that he was buried at Villanova, quote, where he had a suburban residence, Stone Lee. Stone Lee was designed by the renowned architecture firm Wilson Brothers and Company and constructed between 1877 and 1890 in the Gothic style. Among many Wilson Brothers surviving buildings are the main building of Drexel University and the Reading Terminal in Philadelphia. Before he died, Edmund and his wife, Arabella, hired the well-known English landscape gardener, Charles H. Miller. Trained at Kew Gardens, Miller later served as chief gardener for Fairmount Park and was best known for his sunken gardens. At the start of the 20th century, Samuel Bodine acquired the property. At the time, Bodine was president of United Gas Improvement Company, or UGI. 
At its peak, UGI was the second largest public utility holding company in the United States. In addition to completely raising the original home and creating the magnificent Tudor Revival home that exists today, Bodine hired the newly formed New York landscape architecture firm of Pentecost and Vitale to increase the formality of the gardens in the heavily ornamented and lavish beaux art style that originated in Paris. George Pentecost Jr. had designed the National Mall between the U.S. Capitol and the Washington Monument. Ferruccio Vitale would work with many partners during his career, amassing an impressive clientele that included Isaac Guggenheim, Andrew Mellon, Percy Rockefeller, Alfred DuPont, the paint manufacturer Benjamin Moore, and the publisher Condé Nast. Their acclaim notwithstanding, Bodine was unhappy with the results of the work on the property at Stone Lee. So in 1908, Bodine reached out to the Olmsted Brothers Company, spearheaded by the sons of Frederick Law Olmsted and the most prestigious landscape architecture firm in the country at the time. With the help of the Olmsted brothers, Bodine oversaw the addition of new garden houses, greenhouses, and formal gardens. For over half a century, the relationship with the Olmsted brothers would be affirmed time and again at Stone Lee, rerouting points of entry, planning vistas and pathways, establishing gardens, and adding terraces. Three generations later, the property was divided and the southwestern portion of the estate was sold to Otto Haas, an entrepreneur and co-founder of Rome and Haas Company, later acquired by Dow Chemical. In 1964, Otto's son John and his wife Cara acquired the property. John and Cara raised their five children at Stone Lee and made it their home for the next five decades until their deaths in 2011 and 2012, respectively. For over 80 years, from 1932 until 2016, Stone Lee was carefully stewarded by the Haas family. In 2016, the Haas family graciously entrusted the home and land to natural lands, ensuring that Stone Lee's extraordinary trees, sweeping vistas, and intimate garden spaces will be preserved forever. With plans in place to transition Stone Lee from a private estate to a public space, things began to move quickly. Natural Lands started renovation on the property, on both the home and its gardens. After conducting a thorough search, Ethan Kaufman was hired as the director of Stone Lee, and his main job would be overseeing the transformation to a native garden. Today, Stone Lee is a showcase for blending the aesthetic beauty of designed gardens with the natural richness of native habitats. 
In addition, the Tudor Revival Home at Stonely serves as home to the Oregon Historical Society, an organization that celebrates, preserves, and studies the pipe organ in America. And the home has space for a wide variety of programs in the future. This week's grand opening at Stonelea is the result of over two years of planning, planting, and preparation. On Saturday, May 12th from 4 to 8 p.m., Natural Lands members are invited to an exclusive first look before the property opens to the public. Members can pick their own spot on the Great Lawn for a picnic, birch tree catering is available, or you can bring your own. Members can stroll the gardens and tour the main house, the Tudor Revival Mansion, at their leisure. Then on Sunday, May 13th from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., Stone Lee officially opens to the public, and the public is invited for a strollabout, a longtime tradition of the Haas family. It's a time when guests can explore the winding garden paths and absorb the beauty of spring. On Sunday, there is also a Natural Lands members-only Mother's Day tea in the main house, prepared and served by the award-winning Birch Tree Catering. Reservations are required for one of the three seatings at noon, 1.30, and 3 p.m. Becoming a member of Natural Lands means you receive a year's worth of member benefits. Plus, your support will help further Natural Lands' mission to save open space, care for nature, and connect people to the outdoors. So please consider joining this worthwhile organization. Today's show is a wonderful introduction to our newest public garden, Stone Lee, and a fantastic behind-the-scenes look at the transformation. I want to make sure to specifically recognize the great work of the dedicated team of people who worked countless hours to get this amazing historic property ready for its debut. Dennis Kanakis, Laura Cruz, Cody Hudgens, Summer Sugg, Jason Wirtz, and of course, Ethan Kaufman. Here's Stone Lee, America's newest public garden, plus an in-depth chat with Ethan Kaufman about his vision and the plants he loves most in the garden. Well, Ethan, welcome to the Still Growing Podcast. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here today. Well, I have to ask, you were picked as the designer for this Stone Lee project. What's your background? Tell us everything. Well, first of all, I am extremely passionate about horticulture and public gardens. Um, I've been in the field for 20 years, and I've had some interesting stops along the way. You know, I worked in zoo horticulture at Riverbank Zoo in Columbia for about eight years. And previous to this position, uh, I was director of Moore Farms Botanical Garden in South Carolina which is a really unique garden in rural South Carolina. I came back to this area because I actually grew up in nearby Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, which is about an hour and a half from Villanova where Stonely is located. And it was there that I really 
developed my love for the natural world. You know, as a, as a child, my father took us out in the woods all the time, and we grew up with 10 acres around us, and it's in my DNA. And so this was an amazing opportunity to come back to my roots, to come back to a place that was near and dear to my heart, where my family still lives, and be able to take on a project as amazing as Stonely and help guide this transition process from a former private estate to a public garden. Yeah, it's not every day this kind of opportunity presents itself. How did you hear about it? You're exactly right. It's not every day. Uh, I first heard about it through a colleague who had been part of the Longwood Garden Graduate Program, and there's a list that's sent out to that group. And she emailed me and said, hey, there's this garden in Pennsylvania, the emphasis on native plants. It's an, an amazing opportunity, and you know, maybe you should check this out. And so thankfully, I did. Thankfully, you did indeed. Now, let me ask you this. What are you good at when it comes to the garden? What's your specialty? Hmm. Well, I think uh, one of the things that I'm good at is probably identifying other really talented people to work with. I think that's always been a good trait of mine. And one of the things that I enjoy most in the garden is the collaborative process of a lot of really bright people bringing their ideas together to make this sort of harmonious vision. And aside from that, I am a complete plant geek, so I really like to get into the details of, of the plants, really enjoy that aspect. Um, but also, I think just a broad range of skills that are helpful in a public garden. Now, is there a a signature look or a signature plant or, or something that you do that really reflects your design? I favor, I tend to favor unconventional practices and little-used species. Uh, I value traditional gardening methods and certainly employ them, but I really like to try things that are different and experiment. And I think that's one of the things that's so attractive about Stoneleaf is it's a blank canvas for us to really try to be unique in some ways and use native plants that maybe people aren't thinking of just yet. You're right. You know, it, it was a blank canvas, but it had this amazingly long history. Did you spend much time studying that and trying to maybe give a nod to some of the things that happened over time at Stone Lee? That's a great question. And I was probably remiss in my statement about saying it's a blank canvas because it's an absolutely spectacular landscape that had some of the best landscape architects of their day involved here. So it really is an amazing property, It's but it's more in a park-like sense with sweeping lawns and majestic trees and some gentle topography. And in looking back in the history of the of the property, the uh, Olmstead brothers were involved for a, a period of 50 years, and they were actually the longest, certainly the longest documented property in their firm's history. Oh, and we're, and we're uh, fortunate enough to have a lot of their old plans. And so it's been great fun to sort of pour over these documents and see just what they were installing 100 years ago. We, of course, want to be informed by some of these decisions, but really this is a garden, and gardens are dynamic. They change over time. We have images from 1913 that it shows just how much they change, and so we're not, we'll be informed by what they've done, but we're not looking to place it all together like you would a model airplane. We're looking to create our own, own vision um, by using some of their, all of their hardscapes and really all of their major designs, but the plants will come in with a more modern take. Well, let's do a little bit of a deep dive here on the history of Stone Lee. You mentioned the Olmstead brothers. Tell us who they were 
and how they designed this landscape of Stoneleigh? Mm, great question. I would also like to mention that previous to the Olmstead brothers, there was a, there were two other landscape architects that were involved with the property. Um, George Pentecost and Fruggio Vitali were also very well known. And so they worked on the property from about 1900 to 1906. And they were much more formal in Beaux-Arts style. So their things were, there were symmetry, clipped hedges, clean lines, geometric taxis, and all those things that we associate with that style of the period, which was very popular then. Um, but the present owner uh, at the time just didn't feel like that fit him personally. And so he did hire the Olmsted brothers, who were sons of Frederick Law Olmsted, who we all know is the father of American landscape architecture. And so they came on site, and they really had some radical changes where they took away a lot of the formality and introduced a more naturalistic expression. And they did this by softening a lot of the edges, creating open vistas that one can see from the main house down, sweeping across the lawn, and some really beautiful tree plantings as well. Let's give listeners an idea of this property. So when you walk up, what does it look like? Is it enormous feeling? Is it intimate? What What does it feel like? <laughs> All right. So one of my favorite aspects of Stoneley is that for so many years in this community, people would drive by it and they knew about it, but they couldn't really see much behind this very towering curtain of trees. And so the first thing it does is exudes a sense of mystery. You just want to know what's behind the curtain. For me personally, when I first drove onto the property, I came through the gate, and immediately I was greeted by these majestic towering trees, open expanses of gently rolling lawns. And then you come around the bend and you see this glorious house, a Tudor Revival-style house, heavy stone, but beautiful, not too austere, and not masculine, but a beautiful house that really fits the site. And I think, uh, you know, top of this small hill, and again, my first visit was a beautiful day. The sun was shining. And I thought, wow, this is an amazing place. And you can really feel, I think, a lot of the history on the site through the beautiful stonework. We have some really nice, uh, amazing pergola that was done around the turn of last century. That's all stone. This with a hick and shift that's prevalent in the Philadelphia area. It's very characteristic and one would say iconic as well. Well, first of all, I just want to say that you must have taken it as a sign driving up to the property on such a beautiful day and having the property kind of greet you in that very lovely fashion. Oh, yeah, absolutely. As soon as I, I was on site, I thought, this is this is a special place. And I think just seeing the care that had been put into the property for generations, really, the level of uh, stewardship was really gratifying to see. And then it was this mainline country estate that really is intact and has not changed like so many other examples have over the years have been turned into schools or you know, in some cases, completely raised. And so Stoneley is, is very well of the place, of the main line, of its era. I think that's a really special attribute. Yeah. Now, why is it called Stoneley? Do you know? <laughs> that's a really good question, and a lot of people ask. And, of course, I'd like to know, too. And so I've asked the family, the Haas family, who lived on the property for 80 years. And they think that Stoneley was borrowed from an English manor house. And like so many other estates of the time in this area, 
it was sort of a way to take this aristocratic legacy of England and imprint it on some of the newer money here in the United States. And so there there really isn't a definite answer on where that came from, other than it was sounded grand. It does sound grand. And I have to say that in addition to saying Stone Lee, you've mentioned Stone quite a bit as you're talking about the hardscapes. Tell us about some of the hardscapes and maybe the use of stone in and around this property. So for me, it's particularly striking. I spent the last 20 years in South Carolina and this region, you know, in the South, the coastal plain, there's no stone. And so this is a very characteristic, I think, of Northeast and especially Southeastern Pennsylvania, where stone is such a prevalent factor, not only because it was, it's there, but because it holds up in the weather and, um, and it's, it's again, such a perfect material for building. And we have several areas of the garden that the Olmsteads designed and the Costa and Vitale that uh, are defined by stone. And one of them is what I think one of the most magical places in the garden, and that's called the Circle Garden. And it's this perfectly symmetric circle, perhaps 200 feet across, set down in the ground with a stone border around it that's about four feet tall. When you stand out in the middle of this thing, you really feel these trees, you feel the age, you feel that it's a really unique place. And then we also have the pergola that I mentioned, which is also completely made out of stone. These were created, again, in this time period, sort of a way to mimic Italian gardens and the pergolas that were found there. Again, as a way to show somebody's wealth and, and, and the connection to the old world. How about paths? Are there a lot of stone paths on the property? Yeah, we've, we have uh, several stone paths that were, again, original to the Olmsted brothers. But as a former private estate, Really, there weren't a lot of paths, and and it's not the kind of place that would have been easily accessible to the public. And as a public garden, we need to be accessible to everybody. And so one of the great features that occurred during the renovation was to build all these accessible pathways. We have over a mile that are accessible to people with mobility issues, people with strollers, and other things. And so it's, it's really a great way to see the garden now, whereas before it would have been difficult for people to navigate some of these hilly lawn areas. I see in the outline that you sent that this home was really passed down through the generations in the Haas family, ending up in the hands of John and Cara Haas. Tell us a little bit about the time that they spent there, their enjoyment of the property and the, the garden and the land, and then the decision to donate the land to natural lands. Well, John and Cara acquired the property from their parents, and they moved in in 1964. And they were amazing stewards of the place, but probably more than that, it was a family home for them. And they raised five children that grew up here. And I think that really creates these memories that and, and really kind of give us some guidance on how the property should feel because it was a family home. And in talking with some of them, we would just hear these stories about playing hide and seek and, and where they had dinners. And it, it really helps us understand the essence of the place. But during their time, they loved their land and they loved trees. And they spent a lot of time making sure they were well-groomed and disease-free and pruned and also planted new trees as well. And the Haas family is pretty much synonymous with generosity in Philadelphia. They are among the very most philanthropic in the entire region. Uh, indeed, Philadelphia would not be what it is today without their generosity. So Stonely 
again, is a, is a, a breathtaking example of that. I'm just honored and privileged to be now guiding this property. And what led to their decision to donate the property to Natural Lands? Well, they knew that they wanted to preserve the property and the beauty of it, the wildlife habitats, and the historic landscape architecture features, but they weren't exactly sure how that would happen. And so Natural Lands, our organization, actually worked with them trying to identify ways to manage this open space. And during this process, it just sort of became evident that, hey, you know what? Maybe Natural Lands is the right organization to do this. And sure enough, we jumped at the chance and really, really have been ecstatic about the results. John and, and Cara's children are still living, is that right? Yes. Yes, there are four uh, living in the area and then another is on the West Coast. Yeah. And how tremendous for the public to be able to see this home. I looked at a video online and it was showing images of the home as it looked during the 1930s. I have to say, as I was watching it, I just kept thinking of Downton Abbey. <laughs> I've never seen Downton Abbey, but I'm, of course, familiar with the show. I think I can see how that would conjure up those images, but I, I also think knowing that the family who lived there, they were very humble and not of the sort that would want to, I think, have that feeling of their place. I think it was a family home with loving memories and that sort of thing, rather than this highly aristocratic place. Yeah. But the woodwork looks tremendous. The uh, sitting rooms and all the little built-ins, just the little nooks, I just thought it was a very delightful place. Yeah, the craftsmanship is phenomenal. And, you, know, you don't just don't see that kind of work anymore. No. Um, I marvel, every time I go in there, I marvel at the wood and the detail and just the time that was put in. Um, mm -hmm. Even as you walk in the front door, it's this sort of austere sandstone entrance. It's sort of conveys some authority, some masculinity, but then as you walk out, immediately you see again this nice warm oak paneled walls and ceilings with ornate designs in them, and it's a really special place. Yeah. Now, will the home be open to the public as well? Yes, the home will be open by appointment, primarily for tours. You know, we'll conduct some workshops in there, and, and especially we'll have some events where people can enjoy the house. But uh, during the day-to-day -day operations, the garden will be the primary place for our guests to enjoy. Hmm. I'd love to have you share maybe some of the unique or special features of the home. <laughs> well, one of the most exciting features that wasn't always present there but is being installed right now is a residence organ. And a residence organ, of course, is an instrument. We all know what organs are. And most houses of Stonely stature had an organ um, in this area at that time. So it's kind of neat that Stonely is finally getting its own organ. And part of that is because of the relationship that we have with another nonprofit, which is the Oregon Historical Society. And the Oregon Historical Society is the world's largest archive and collection of organ documents, kind of like the Library of Congress of Organs. And so they occupy the second and third floors of the main house. And so it's a really exciting connection for us. And we see a lot of collaborative opportunities in programming and enhancing the guest experience. Oh, wow. Very much so. You know, now that you're mentioning it, that's where I saw this video of the home as it was in the 1930s. And I thought, huh, I wonder yeah. what the connection is with this organ group, but I didn't know what it was. So that explains it. Yeah. Some of the other neat features 
I think, of, of the house. Again, this beautiful woodwork. Uh, one of my favorite rooms is this uh, stair hall where there's a, a beautiful staircase. It's a low-slung banister. It's wide, and you get to the second sort of landing, and there's this nice padded seat in front of a large window, and the sunlight comes in, and every time I walk past, I think, oh, my gosh, I'd love to sit there, read a book, and have a hot chocolate. There's also a really neat old elevator that I think people tend to refer to it as a birdcage elevator. It's one of those that you slide the door across, and it just has this really neat feel to it. Well, I'm glad you brought up the stairway because I have to say that that stairway is, I think, what most reminded me of Downton Abbey because when Mary comes down the staircase for the wedding and she sees her dad, that that very much looks like the staircase that they show in Downton Abbey. So it's a beautiful home, to say the least. Just absolutely gorgeous. I, I just think people will be very excited if they get a chance to peek inside. I agree 100%. And some of the uh, very limited tours that we've done, just for some of our partners and friends, people have been really blown away because uh, it was a beautiful home to begin with. And we uh, did so much renovation work and the skill with which it was done and the engineers and architects, contractors. Uh, it's it's really spectacular what's been done to the place. I, I think all our guests have echoed that sentiment. So was the home renovated as well then? Yes, it was a, a not a complete renovation, but in terms of the systems, you know, all the electrical, uh, we had floors out and walls out, and a new elevator was put in. It was it was pretty much it was pretty comprehensive, actually. Wow, well, a huge project. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like a very big undertaking, inside and out, which is great though for the future because it, the future sounds very bright. I have to say, you're going to be looking for an organist now if you've got a new organ going in. <laughs> That's something the OHS, the Oregon Historical Society, I think will think about, and I think there'll be guest organists that come in and play. But the staff, whom we really developed a wonderful relationship with, they all play the organ as well. So it's uh, it's it's really neat. No pressure, right? No pressure. No, no I'm, <laughs> I'm not an organist myself, but I, I can enjoy it. There you go. You'll have to see if they'll take requests. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about the Haas family donation. There apparently is this conservation easement that happened with natural lands. You touched on that earlier, but let's talk a little bit more about it. The conservation easement was put in place, I believe, in the 90s and was really a way to sort of, again, develop a relationship with natural lands and the Haas family, which obviously has led to fruitful relationship culminating and, and hopefully beyond Stonely. Well, and the actual transfer of ownership took place in April of 2016. Is that when things really got underway at Stonely? Actually, there was planning for several years even before that, pretty intense planning. But then, yes, 2016 is when uh, shortly, you know, maybe four months, five months after that, we broke ground on construction and uh, things really went full speed on site. You know, it's entirely possible that there's someone listening, another family in this situation where they have somewhat of a historic or special property and they'd like to preserve it. This is an option that they could pursue. So let's talk about turning a family home and estate into a public garden, that whole process. You're exactly right. One of the first things that happened on site physically, uh, we addressed the facilities and infrastructure, making the buildings that existed on site suitable for public use and suitable for staff use. 
So that took a lot of planning and execution. And then we thought about, of course, the public and, and when they visit and how can they visit. So we need a parking lot. And a parking lot in Villanova is not the easiest thing to do. And we had a two and a half acre parcel that the Haas family actually acquired for that purpose. And that's where our parking lot now is. We have a space for 66 cars. And of course, we had to put these pathways in. And we wanted to make sure that they were accessible for everyone. Again, that's really important for us as an organization. Natural lands, our mission is saving land, caring for that land, and bringing people to nature and, and having people access, give access to nature. And, and Stonely is a really prime example of that because the admission is free. It's located in a populated area near a major road. And so we were really excited about the opportunity to welcome a broad range of guests here. So here's a question for you. Did you have to build buildings on the property for things like restrooms or break areas or maybe even a food area? I don't know. Yeah, we did. We called the pool house and the pool house essentially occupies the footprint of our family's pool house. Um, the building was taken down and this new one was built in its place and it serves as a flexible space for, again, meetings and, and functions and events. But then also there are restrooms for people when they visit. That's one of the first things we had to think about. We also constructed a great pavilion where we encourage people to have picnics. And also a welcome kiosk where we're able to interact with our guests as they come into the garden. And these were all built out of really high-quality materials, really neat. So we had stone masons that came on and hand-carved this stone for use in the pillars. And it really connects well with the history of the property and the existing quality that's already there. Hmm. Well, Ethan, you know, you can't hardly talk about a historic place and organ going in, the beautiful grounds, without somebody listening going, hey, I wonder if they do weddings. <laughs> Lots of people ask that, actually. <laughs> and we are going to probably hold off on any kind of site usage, site rentals for the first year until we learn more about how we operate as a public garden. And then we'll begin to explore that later as we can have a better understanding of, of where we are. That sounds prudent. Let's talk a little bit about natural lands. Let's make sure people understand natural lands and what they're all about. Can you tell us about this organization and the role that they've played in this transition with the Haas family? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually new to natural lands. Uh, I've been on uh, the job probably about 15 months, and I feel so so fortunate to have landed in such a great organization. I think when I think of natural lands, I think about people who are really passionate professionals who are really dedicated to what they're doing. I think about this commitment to excellence that is really a sign of the quality of both the staff and the vision of, of this organization. You know, it's the region's largest and oldest land conservation organization. And we have uh, 44 nature preserves and 13 counties and two states over 23,000 acres protected, and these are all free to the public. And there are about two and a half million people that live within a couple miles of, uh, of one of our preserves. And uh, I love going to them. I go to them all the time. And, you know, coming from a place like South Carolina where there was so much open space, and I come to a place that's much more densely populated, I really see how incredible the work is that places like Natural Lands do because it's, it's, uh, I need it for my sanity to go to these to go walk in the woods or, or go walk in an open field with a dog. And it's just really wonderful. Hmm, great point. Um, 
But in addition to that, natural lands also has another, you know, 23,000 acres under easement that's protected, offers some really neat events, I think, that the, the public enjoys. And so it's a, it's a dynamic organization. Yeah, I had no idea the scope of it or how vital it sounds. So it sounds like they've got tons of resources. This is not their first rodeo. They were really perfect, the perfect choice to work with for the Haas family, it sounds like. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, a really a really great fit. And it's a new venture as well for us as an organization, I think. And it really, again, displays some of that dynamism and some of the, the new ways in which we're growing. Well, let's talk about your experience in particular, what it was like for you. You come on board in 2016 and you're tasked with creating this public garden. Actually, when I came on board, a master plan had already been created. And, you know, again, at Natural Lands, we have a really talented group of people. And so there's some landscape architects on staff that put together a great plan. When I came on board and, and as the, the garden staff came on board, so we were able to look at these plans and interpret them on the ground level for this space. Yeah, I know we've all really enjoyed adding new features and um, enhancing old ones with our palette of native plants. Yeah, let's walk through some of the special garden features. First of all, this is a garden that really incorporates native plants. Tell us about why that was important to you and then maybe highlight some of your favorite native plants that are featured at Stone Lee. Well, as natural lands, you know, again, we look at our mission. It's a natural fit for a place like Stone Lee to sort of exemplify that through the expression in the garden. And one of the most obvious ways to do that is with, of course, native plants because they have such a positive message. But also the native plants aren't the only part of the story. You know, they're, we like to think about ecological horticultural practices, things like stormwater management, reduced chemical use, biodiversity, and those types of themes. So the native plants are really a component of a greater sense of sustainability and responsible land management here at Stonely. And some of my favorite native plants, um, who doesn't love a dogwood, an eastern dogwood, the most beautiful native tree, I mm -hmm. think it could be. I think it's certainly, you could call it, you might call it the queen of native trees in the eastern forest. That's one of my favorites. I also love, of course, red buds. Uh, very adaptable harbinger of spring. The flowers and that sense of seasonality really resonates with a lot of people. I also love our state flower, the mountain laurel. Again, when you're talking about native plants, especially in this area, we don't have a whole lot of broadleaf evergreens that are winter hardy, but that's one of them. And when they get old, they get this terrific sort of form that's you know, craggly, but it looks like it has this long history to it. It's sort of these bent, wobbling, Canes that go up and with sort of sparse vegetation on the top, but they're very beautiful and very atmospheric. And we have some great examples here at Stony. They're probably about 100 years old. How about grasses? Did you incorporate a lot of grasses? Yeah, um, it's totally one of the unique opportunities we have are to use, I think, native plants in more formal ways. I think so many people think of native plants, they think of sort of this leggy, I don't want to say weedy, but some people would say a weedy aesthetic. A natural aesthetic, but with this main house, we have a really neat opportunity to sort of use them in formal ways. And one of the grasses I like best to do that is a panicum called Northwind, and it's very erect, it's very blue, and it has a certain ingrained formality to it that I think is perfect for a place like this. And, you know, you never, I think grasses in mass, is, you know, one or two here and there for accents and some borders are fine, but really the best way to use grasses are in mass. I think it's so effective when the wind 
captures the seed heads and, and moves them back and forth. It's magical. Yeah. Now let's give the home gardener an idea of what Ethan Kaufman means when he says plant in mass. How many are we talking? Hmm. <laughs> that was a good question, actually. I think for something like a grass, I like to see at least 30, you know. Okay. Um, but if, if you don't have the space, you can do less. But I, I like to see at least 30, preferably 5,000 <laughs> if you have a big enough property. But... <laughs> Oh, Ethan. Okay. All right. I love that answer, though, because see, that really gives people an idea of what are you thinking about? What are you talking about when we're talking about public gardens? So I love that answer. Uh, Let's talk about ground cover. You know, ground cover, when I talk to people who've been gardening a long time, ground cover begins to rise to the top of their priority list of things they appreciate in the garden, things that just serve so many purposes, weed suppression, whatnot. They're so tolerant. What are your favorite ground covers, and did you use any at Stonely? Yeah, well, ground covers are extremely important. You know, one of the things here, we don't want to have, you know, you don't want to see mulch all over the place. I think that's kind of, you're failing if you see a rounded ball of shrub and then mulch all over. So, yeah, ground covers are extremely important to for beauty, but also to keep weeds down. Um, I love violas. I think violets are wonderful ground covers. I like Allegheny Spurge. In, in place of our the exotic pachysander that you see in so many places. I even like garden thugs like ostrich fern. I think it's a large ground cover, but again, something that will spread and, and just kind of blot everything else out. It's like an easy to place in the landscape when you can have something that just grows without too much care. Um, let's see. I also like some of the smaller tick seeds that spread for ground covers. They're kind of cute and they have nice bright yellow flowers. I like sedums. I think some of the native sedums are really nice. Again, that succulent texture of the leaves kind of is a is a great contrast with other plants and uh, goes really well. Uh, Michella or partridge berry is a very interesting ground cover if you can if you can find it. It's one of our native plants. It's called also called twin flower because it gets these two small white flowers that appear and then followed by this red berry. It's got a really fine texture that again paired with something with a broader leaf. It really helps accentuate. I think cranberry is very interesting if you have the right place. Uh, they get beautiful fruit that you can eat. But it's just neat to have somebody walk out in the garden and say, that's, that's cranberry. That's, that's the plant that we get our ocean spray from. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. That's great. You know, at the top of the show, when we talked about some of the things that you're known for, you mentioned picking unusual things and incorporating those. What are some of the more unusual things that you're kind of proud of incorporating into Stonely? All right. I think one of the things that we're planning to do, we're we're getting the plants in right now that I think are really interesting is, again, we want to look at alternatives for some of these non-native plants that aren't so great for our environment. So we're looking for substitutes for those. And, and driving around the main line of Philadelphia, I see privet hedges all over the place. And I think, okay, what you know, what would make a great alternative to that? And one of my favorites, I think, is what's now known as Hearts of Bustin', which is my favorite name for it. And it's a euonymus that is really twiggy, has these deep green stems throughout, and it's endlessly cheerable. And so it makes a really, I think, great substitute for something for a privet. And I don't think too many people would be using this, but uh, it's something we want to showcase here at Stonely. Other things, you know, I think hedging, hedge alternatives are really interesting to explore. And there are some of the uh, inkberries that are out now that are really dense. 
low growing that are good boxwood substitutes. So we were looking at using a lot of those around the main house, again, to sort of provide alternatives that are, that are a little healthier for our planet. Also, uh, one of the things I want to have fun with is to do a sort of uh, native weed lawn, you know, have this lawn, but plant some weedy native species in it uh, to create an interesting look and some color along the way. We're doing things like yucca, tricolor yucca or yucca, the gold yucca that, I'm sorry, yellow yucca that you might see three or four in a somewhere planted. We have, I think, 250 that we planted in this, in this nice mass, and it's, it's pretty striking. So again, using familiar plants in unfamiliar ways and using less familiar plants, I think, in traditional ways really has a lot of appeal for us. Hmm. Well, I love that you drive around looking at privet, thinking about what are some good substitutes for that. I know that people are going to want to ask again, what was the name of that euonymus? Hearts a-busting. <laughs> Hearts a-busting. Okay. Hearts a-busting. And then I wanted to ask your thoughts on incorporating natives into lawns. You brought this up. This is something that in Minnesota, we have this brand new bee lab that's part of the Arboretum. And so they're incorporating things like clover because the pollinators love that in lawns. That can be a really tough sell for people who love a nice carpet of grass. I guess, what are some of the plants that you're thinking about if you were going to entertain this idea of incorporating natives into some type of lawn at Stone Lee? Lawn alternatives for native plants? I don't know that there is a great one out there right now. I know some of the carrots, some of the sedges people use, and they've been somewhat successful, but I haven't seen anything that really will take the place of a lawn. And I know for us here at Stoneman, we have 14 acres of turf. One of our goals is to reduce this greatly by planting other things like bunch grasses. But again, I think for people that have gardens at their home, I would say that, first of all, turf is better than asphalt. I think everybody should remember that and, and not think that plants are the enemy here all the time. But I would also say turf is okay to have. I mean, but if you can do your part and reduce what, what you have, just, you know, maybe keep what you need and plant some of these other native plants, create beds in place of it. But yeah, turf is not this horrible thing, I think, in moderation. Yeah, it's not an enemy per se. This is a great question for you because I know that this is something that I'm sure you had to do when you came onto the property at Stone Lee, and that is you have to take a garden or an area that's been doing something, and now you want it to do something else. So do you have any tips for us or strategies or secrets, things that you like to do when you're going to repurpose a new space? How do we start with a clean slate? Because it can be a really tough thing for people to do. In fact, I talk to a lot of gardeners and it can be so overwhelming that they just say, ah, we'll just skip it. And they live with it for years. Yeah, I've seen that too. Um, you know, I think I think one of the things I try and do is you think about what do you really want this space to be and, and sort of let that guide you. But I, you know, I, I think a lot of the stumbling block are that people are sometimes just uh, either intimidated or afraid to fail. And so my advice would be it's gardening and it's really fun. I mean, it's, it's fun stuff and it's not serious stuff. So um, take the plunge. Don't worry if you're not following all the rules. I think some of the most exciting gardens are places that break the rules anyway. And you know, have fun with it. That's the most important thing. And I think if you kind of let go of some of these preconceived notions about what you're supposed to do, I think then you can start developing a, a vision free of stress. <laughs> yeah. About what others think. 
Let's let's talk a little bit about the physical work of making that happen. If you were to take over an established garden and you were going to transform it into something else, what do you like to do? Do you pull up all the plants? Do you dig it all Ooh. up? Do you just smother it with something and wait a little bit? What do you do to get that space ready to be a clean palette? Yeah, well, we're fortunate to have some heavy equipment here that really helps in the process. But I've also been places where you just had to get out there with some shovels and, and your friends and neighbors and, and dig things out. And I would mm-hmm. start, of course, with the invasive plants first. Okay. And then just, you know, be prepared to live with something that might be unsightly for a while. You're not going to get it all at one time. You just have to patiently attack what you can. And and sometimes what I, what I like to do, it's really nice to choose a smaller area that's manageable and totally clean that up, plant it the way you want. And that way you have like a, a place that is a sense of accomplishment and kind of a vision for what you can do the rest of the property without, you know, you feel so overwhelmed if you try to tackle everything at once. Yeah. If I would. Yeah, for sure. I'd like to do something fun with you here. I'd like to talk about the native plants, but this time I'd like to talk about the native plants in terms of the seasons that they shine in. So when you think about Stonelea and we're coming into spring, what are some of the natives on the property that are going to be the standouts for spring? And then let's do the other seasons as well. All right. So you know, this is kind of an underused native tree that I really love, and that's sassafras. And sassafras has uh, intensely yellow flowers that are really early, flowers on naked stems. And if you plant them in mass or in front of something dark like an evergreen tree or a pine, it's really kind of startling and beautiful. Um, and so I, I think sassafras are something people should think more about. They have sort of an asymmetric form that might scare a lot of people away, but I find that, again, there's magic in the imperfections of plants. Yeah. Uh, also, like um, tulip, pop, tulip trees, I think when they emerge and their leaves come out, they're not quite chartreuse, and they're not quite green. They're kind of this nice medium color that, again, stands out against other darker plants. On the ground, we have some really neat bogs that we put in, bog gardens. And, of course, most people know that that's a, a place where insect-eating plants like pitcher plants live and Venus flytraps. And so spring is the season that they flower and they have these uh, extraordinary spikes that come up. And then on top is this plasticky, and it looks like an alien black flower and really captivating to most people who see them. And so this is an amazing flower. I really enjoy those when they come up. How about summer? Let's think about maybe some of the perennials that you might be planting that are really going to take center stage when summer rolls around. Well, yeah, summer is a time I think we do think a lot about some of our powerhouse perennials like black-eyed Susans and coneflowers and gay feather, hibiscus, which are really stalwarts when a lot of other things aren't in flower. Uh, I know we're planting many, many varieties of each of those. Um, we're also planting, of course, I think uh, a little earlier in summer, uh, we love the phloxes, that delicate, the delicate pinks and purples, hard to beat. We also love sunflowers. You know, I, some people, I think, have their fill of too many yellow composites, but I think used judiciously, you know, they, they can occupy lots of different places in the garden. I like meadow beauties a lot. I love Baptisia. I think that's one of the best perennials around just because of their durability. They're almost like a shrub that way. They're kind of a long-lived perennial, but they have a terrific color. 
and they have neat architecture in their foliage. Um, and then they kind of go away like late in the season. So you can underplant them with something else interesting mm-hmm. that comes up after. How about, was there a sentimental favorite when you think about John or Cara Haas? Did they have a, or somebody in the Haas family, did they have a sentimental favorite perennial, blooming perennial? Mm, You know, I think they really love trees. And I think one of the most significant trees to them is there are two turkey oaks that were healings that were brought from one of their former properties really, really early on many years ago. And I know that these are special trees them based on where they came from in their history. Hmm. How about fall? Fall at Stonely. What are you looking forward to? <laughs> it's completely magical. Uh, I had my first fall last year. And again, with so many large trees and diverse trees here, it's just this panoply of reds and yellows and oranges. Um, I really like, we have some big bald cypress. They turn a lovely bronze. And we have some nice hickories, which are, of course, that really bright canary yellow. A few sweet gums. You know, you get some purples and reds with sweet gums. And we have some spectacular sugar maples, just spectacular. And they might be my favorite of all. I mean, again, the yellow is second to none. It's, it's just beautiful here. It sounds like it. And how about winter, finally? Are there things that you purposefully placed, whether it's a hardscape item or or even art, potentially, that you added to this garden to add winter interest? Um, yeah, so certainly winter, um, we've had a lot of snow this March, and it is really a beautiful place. And I think one of the neat aspects of the property is that we will be open to the public even during winter, and so people can come in here when a lot of other gardens and areas are closed, and they can enjoy you know, this winter landscape. We have numerous hollies with their red berries. We have... Uh, as you mentioned, some really uh, spellbinding hardscapes and stone structures. And just seeing the architecture of the bare branches of these trees, I think, is is reason enough to come. Uh, it's, it really is an all-season property. Do you guys decorate for the holidays there? Uh, we don't, but we do. We, you know, we'll put up some wreaths that we, we uh, make from some of the plants around here. But um, we, we do decorate the, the hair sculpture. That is present on County Line Road. It was a chainsaw carving um, with five rabbits on it that was created by a local artist. And it's really kind of a popular in the community. And, and the Haas family had this really neat tradition of decorating it. Or, you know, summer they put sunglasses on these on these rabbits and put towels and surfboards out there. St. Patrick's Day, they, they do shamrocks and uh, things like that. And so we've continued that tradition. You know, in the holidays, we'll do a nice winter theme. The Eagles won the Super Bowl in Philadelphia. Don't know if you heard Minnesota, but he did. And so, so we, we use Eagles paraphernalia, and I think people really enjoyed that. That's fantastic. Well, now you have to tell us about the Haas family here, is this sculpture and why it's significant to the Haas family. Well, Haas means, uh, it means hair in German and Dutch, literally. And so I think the Haas family really um, sort of delighted in this, and uh, Cara Haas especially. During her time in Villanova, she was sort of the queen of Villanova, and she received so many guests, and people started getting in the habit of bringing her these rabbit or hair figurines, and she really kind of embraced it, and so, I, I, you know, that's where this sculpture came from. It was done, the original was done 20 years ago, and we acquired the property. It was kind of rotten, uh, very rotten, actually, and it was it probably wouldn't last too much longer, so we, we actually contacted the exact same artist, and he did a, he did a replica for us, and uh, that's what we have now. 
Oh, that's cool. So you guys could maybe potentially end up needing his services again, or you may need to move on to some type of metal <laughs> metal sculpture in 20 years. Yeah, really, that's not a bad idea. Yeah, it's not a bad idea. Yeah. I know you have plans for a meadow at some point. You do have this bog, and I'm assuming that the bog is where the cranberries are. Correct. All right. Tell us a little bit more about the bog, how you designed it, what the transformation was, and is there anything else in there aside from cranberries? The bog is in one of our courtyard spaces, and it's three separate bogs. They're, they're circles of different different widths, and I think the biggest one is maybe 24 feet across. And we wanted to put that in this space because it was a place where people would slow down. They might you know, sit down um, while a family member is using the restroom. They might sit there and read a book, or they just might sit there and soak up the sun. And so I think in these places where people slow down and spend time, you have an opportunity to do some detailed plants and some plants that are really charismatic. And that's what bog plants are because they're things like pitcher plants, which are these modified leaves that are tubes. And uh, the insects go in, it's kind of like a roach motel. They go in and they don't go out. And the plants digest the insects and absorb their minerals. And, you know, kids love them. Kids go crazy. I go crazy for them. Um, is also places where orchids grow, and so there's some beautiful orchids um, that, that thrive in these habitats. And uh, it's really neat when you start telling people about these places that, yeah, this is a Pennsylvania native plant. This picture plant that looks like it came from outer space is native to your state, and uh, I think people really enjoy learning about that. How about the circle garden? What makes up the circle garden? Was that original to the property? Tell us about it. Yeah, the Circle Garden is one of our signature spaces, and it was originally designed by Pentecost and Vitaly, again, around the turn of the century. And what it is is basically a sunken garden. It's a, it's a huge circle that's set down in about four feet with these uh, great stone walls around it. And in its original design, it was something of a knot garden, um, but really it was, a, it was a rose garden. And we have some images from back then where there were these beds with beautiful roses and other perennials. The Olmsted brothers, when they came on board, they actually removed all the plants and put down turf, and they made it a croquet court, which is, is really kind of cool. And, and, I, and I can see how, and that's kind of what it looks like today. It's this flat expanse of turf, and um, I'll probably keep it that way, actually, because it's a magical event space. And I think when we plant around it, a really lively perennial mix, and I think that this turf, um, this uniform turf will be very settling for the eyes. And sometimes you need a break in a garden from all the action. You just need a place where your eyes can rest. I like that. We've talked about the, the garden spaces, and you've mentioned a lot about the trees. Are there any other trees or specimens that you'd like to point out that are really unique or special to the property? Well, Pennsylvania has a wonderful program called the Pennsylvania Big Trees Program. And there's a gentleman by the name of Scott Wade who actually goes around um, to different properties and he measures um, all these trees and there's a state ranking of different species. And so we contacted Scott and said, Hey, you know, we have this great property. Would you like to come out and see what we have? And so he was kind enough to visit us and we walked around with him and got out his instruments and measured all the different trees as we waited sort of breathlessly to see where they would come in on the rankings. And um, we have, uh, I think two, two state champions, one's up in Ironwood and we have a, a couple runner-ups. We have a southern catalpa that's gigantic, and it's a runner-up. And uh, uh, a river birch that's, I think, in the top ten. And 
some false cypress that are up there too. So it's it's a lot of fun, and it's just a good way to sort of put meaning to to trees that really they really don't need that. But I think for for humans, sometimes you need to to qualify them a little bit. I mean, it's just great to know that kind of stuff. I was reading an article recently about two giant trees that they lost at Mount Vernon that were standing over Washington's tomb. And there was some speculation that Washington actually might have planted one. And so they said it was our last living connection to him. But it is fascinating to really dig in, pardon the pun, and, you know, get to know the property. Like, what do you have here? It was a tremendous gift. So what did you actually get? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things why we love trees so much, too, is their sense of permanence and their sense of stability. And you see some of the trees here and you think, gosh, you know, it's probably 150 years old. And that's reassuring for us. It's reassuring for everybody when we see things that that, have, that, are, that exist for that long. And, and this place is certainly full of them. Yeah. Now, when you have that many trees on the property, do you guys do all of the pruning and the maintenance of the trees? Or do you have someone that you work with to do all of that? Yeah, we have a, a couple great arborists that we work with locally. Our, our general rule is anything 20 feet and below that we handle and anything above that we call in people that are specifically trained for that. Yeah. Now, let's talk a little bit about your team. Tell us who's on the team and what you guys spend your time doing. <laughs> Garden, me we have currently six staff and they are some of the best people I have ever worked with and... Laura Cruz is a horticulturalist. Cody Hudgens is a plant recorder and horticulturalist. Um, Summer Suggs is a horticulturalist. And then we have Jason Wirtz, who is a lead horticulturalist. And uh, finally, Dennis Kanakis is the property manager. And Dennis worked for the Haas family for 20 years uh, in a very similar capacity. So we're really happy to have him on board with us um, in this endeavor. Wow. Has Dennis ever told you a really fun or crazy story about the garden? All the time. Dennis is a, a great guy and he is, he's a, a natural storyteller. And so he often regales us on some of the, the things that they used to do and, and how they cited different trees. It really, really creates this great connection to the property. I mean, it, it, it was invaluable for us. Well, let's make sure we add a rule to the bylaws, something like Dennis can never leave. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Oh, wow. Well, when you think about your team, so you've got this wonderful group of people, it sounds like. Do they have favorite areas of the property? When you think about each one of them, are they partial to certain aspects mm. of Stone Lee? Mm, that's a great question. Um, each of the horticulturists, they do have areas that they maintain and are responsible for. And so, yeah, so Jason Wirtz, our lead horticulturist, he does the main house in environs, and uh, I think he's particularly partial to that area, I think, because it's a... A place where it, it can be a showpiece, um, where a lot of ornament can come into play and creative ideas. I know Cody really he loves the outdoors, and so he likes some of these wooded areas along the out, um, sort of the buffers. Um, Summer loves meadows, and so she is partial to her meadow. And then Laura has a, a nice design background, and so she really likes the circle garden and some of the Olmstead areas, and that's what she manages. And then Dennis, of course, yeah, he likes it all. And um, and one of his specialties are the trees and also the turf. He's kind of like the papa f- for the project. Yeah. yeah, I love yeah. that. I love that. 
When you think about how your team works, I'm very curious when you are on a property like this and you come in and you start working it, there's the the beautiful, wonderful, exciting part of creating this garden. But then there's the reality that everybody faces, including you guys, watering, <laughs> taking care yeah. of it, mulching, composting, storage. Tell us about how you water, how you take care of watering, what kind of mulch you like to use. What are just some of your basic everyday things that you got going on there in terms of taking care of this property? Yeah, with so much planning going on, watering is and, and all these tasks are a huge consideration. The staff planted uh, over 200 bald and burlap trees so far. And, you know, with that, you, you tend to think, okay, you put the average person, you know, you put it in the ground and you're done. But no, <laughs> so we, <laughs> there's a lot of work still. So we, we wish, right? We, yeah, we wish. Um, so we provide supports, you know, for, for some of the trees. The township uh, is a requirement for some of them. I'm not necessarily a fan of this for, for most trees. I think you should plant um, small trees and you shouldn't have to stake them, let them get strong on their own. But we do um, add deer protection. We have tremendous deer pressure in the area. So it's always high on our list. We also use these gator bags. It's a product that you just, I'm sure you've seen them. We put around the base of a tree. You can fill it with water and it, it will take a couple of days and drip slowly out. Um, so that's been really helpful. We have a water wagon that we put on one of our um, utility vehicles and it's motorized and it, it, it helps us to reach things that uh, we, we don't have bags for. But uh, with mulch, mulch for me is, is good at the beginning when you don't have enough plants to cover everything and it's also good. Um, retaining moisture and weed suppression and those sorts of things. Really, we don't want to emphasize it, but we do use mulch from the township, which is really fantastic. They give it to us for free. It comes from all our neighbors who take all their sticks and brush piles to site, and it's all ground up. So we're using you know, basically the community's waste, which I really like. And when it breaks down, it's it's, it's pretty decent-looking stuff. Um, we also, my favorite is leaf mulch, especially for finer beds uh, where you put perennials and annuals and that sort of thing. And again, we contacted a lot of our local landscape contractors, landscape professionals, and they'll actually bring their leaves and dump them off here at Stonely. So we have this huge pile that we just take from. And again, we're using our community's waste and putting it back into the ground, which I think I would encourage everybody. So don't go mow your leaves into the turf, rake it around your trees. Use your leaves to, to their advantage. Absolutely. Now, how about signage? When people visit the garden, is there a lot of signage? Do you label your plants? Do you have special things that are, you know, true standouts in the garden where like maybe those trees that that were honorable mention or record setting? How do you handle those types of situations? Well, I think one of the things we wanted to be cognizant of is we wanted to make sure that our guests had the basic information to, to use the site, where to park, where the restrooms are. And then we want to interpret a few of the special places, including sort of an overall message about the property and to acknowledge the family's generosity. But we also recognize that it's such a grand site, such a beautiful site that we don't want it to be overrun with interpretation. I think that can sometimes take away from the experience. But it is important for us to let people know what native plants to use and what they are. And so we will have display tags on some of our favorites. And when, when I come to a garden, I don't know what a plant is. I like to, I want to, I want to know, I want to write it down or, or put it into my tape recorder and, and go home and research it. So um, all of our plants are accessioned and that just means that they're stored in a, a database on the computer and we track them from the cradle to the grave, essentially. And each one of these plants, uh, woody plants, gets a physical tag that's placed on it with its name and its number and, and 
Latin name and common name and other things. So um, uh, there's some involved labeling for some of our plants. Hmm. Now, one thing I forgot to ask you when we were talking about the garden, and that is containers. Do you have containers on the property? I'm imagining urns and things like that, just given how grand <laughs> that, that house is. But really, is there a lot of containers on the property? Currently, we don't have any containers on the property, but, I, you know, I like your suggestion of urns. And, you know, if you're not free, you can come on down from Minnesota and help <laughs> us pick some out. Well, all um, right then. <laughs> <laughs> we, we do actually, yeah, we, we're going to do 10 um, prior to our opening, around 10 at the main house. Um, again, you know, we have a small staff and we're just doing everything um, little by little. Just as I mentioned to other gardeners, you know, take a small area and make it look great and then move out from there. And so that's what we're doing with the main house. We'll do 10 containers. Um, I tend to like my containers a little bit more simple, and I like the plants to really shine through. But everybody has their own preference. Uh, That's just mine. Well, you're speaking my language, Ethan. So let's do these containers up Ethan style. So what would you put in them? If you could just, like, pick anything, what would your containers look like around Stonely? Well, um, I like, you know, the situation dictates for different looks, but uh, I think I, I definitely like groupings of containers. I'm not really married to symmetry all the time, although if you have a doorway and, and that type of thing, one on each side looks good. But I tend to like asymmetric balance in containers, um, layered, you know, um, bulbs. I like romantic containers. I like a little bit of chaos in them. So things flopping out, a vine that kind of courses up through if you have a center woody shrub or, or something like that, let it grow on it. And, and all about contrast, contrast in foliage, color contrast and textures, and then, of course, floral display and habits, you know, like the rounded and that sort of thing. So I think it's all about diversity. I like that. Any particular plants that you'd like to use? Mm. Well, for spiky, uh, again, we're talking native plants. I really like yuccas. I think they're hard to beat. Some other plants that sort of fill that niche uh, with uh, like eryngiums. They sort of have that hard, broader foliage look. I think for things that spill out, you know, a non-native version is wire vine, so I'm interested to think, you know, okay, let me we could try some twin flower, you know, and, and place that as, as sort of an evergreen that would hang down. Um, of course, you know, the colorful plants like phloxes are really nice. Um, I think for floppies, you know, sedums can flop down. I think it's really cool to use opuntia or prickly pear cactus in containers and have them flop down. I like any kind of columnar selection of a plant, of a shrub or something, sort of as a vertical element. Burns are, are wonderful to, to provide softness. I love it. Well, it's not every day you get to pick the brain of somebody who, you know, works with plants the way that you do and also with just your breadth of experience. You've matured on your viewpoint on a lot of plant specimens, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, this baby is about to be born. You've got opening day coming, Mother's Day weekend. Natural first question would be, are any of the Haas family descendants going to join you for opening day? I'm sure that they'll they'll make an appearance, yeah, and I think they'll be really really find it a rewarding experience, yeah. Well, let's let's walk through what's happening on this weekend. So you have activities going on May 12th, but also Sunday, May 13th. Walk us through what's going on there. On May 12th is our members only first look, and Natural Lands is a, um, a member based organization, and so we would love for all of our wonderful members out there to come and take advantage of this free event. But we would also encourage anybody who's not a member to join up 
to take advantage of this event and all the other benefits of being a Natural Lands member. And this event in particular, the scene is a picnic. And so we're inviting people to come out from 4 to 8 p.m. And they'll be able to set up a blanket and enjoy Stonely while having a leisurely picnic uh, anywhere they'd like. I think that people really enjoy in this setting, you know, the, the evening, which is a not a normal time to be in the garden. Um, it'll be magical. Well, it certainly will. And I bet it sounds a little bit like a dream to you because as we're speaking, it's early March and you just had one tremendous storm come through your area. Oh, my goodness. Yes. <laughs> loads of of, yeah. Loads of snow as well or no? Yeah, yeah, we had a good amount of snow. But, you know, this March snow is, is sort of wet and heavy, and it can yeah. be particularly destructive on our trees. Yeah, that's true. And hopefully it melts quickly so that you can get to May and have a wonderful picnic here on the 12th. Yes. Yeah, I think uh, we'll, we'll have a spectacular day. Yeah. Are, are most of the grounds, are they high and dry? Do you have to worry about wet spots, or are you, are you good? No, actually, it's can access most of this property on pathways and it's it's all pretty high and dry we don't have too many areas that hold water and our, and our parking lot's pretty neat uh, we have a, a nice rain garden captures most of the water from you know half of the property so we're taking that off site and then making sure it goes back into the system wow now you're just showing off you guys <laughs> it's, it's neat yeah yeah, Rain Garden by the parking lot. I love that. So May 13th, Sunday, this is the public grand opening, and you're calling it a strollabout. Yeah, and the strollabout is a way to pay homage to the Hot family. In fact, that they had every every Mother's Day, they would have friends and, and neighbors over to come see this beautiful place. And that's what they called it. And so we thought it was really fitting to come back to this theme. Uh, one of my favorite quotes from Kara Haas that she had printed out on these invitation cards was, uh, the preservation and development of the gardens, grounds and house have been an ongoing project of love for us. We feel privileged to have been entrusted with the conservation of this historic and beautiful property. And so that's uh, something that we really admire and adhere to. Yeah, they really got it. It was more than just a home for them. They really understood the magnitude of the importance of this property, just from a historic standpoint, but also the wonderful living legacy of all of the wonderful trees and the beautiful grounds of Stonely. Yeah, it's an amazing legacy. And again, we're just tickled pink that we're, we're able to share with others and so thankful for the Haas family and everything they've done. Yeah, well, I'm tickled for you guys. I, and you have a lot to be happy about here and very proud of, I'm sure. Let's make sure we help people understand how they can become a member of Natural Lands if they'd like to support you in that way, because I'm sure you'll have a lot of people coming to your grand opening. But they may want to join Natural Lands just to show their support and also be able to then come to the event on May 12th, come to the picnic. Absolutely. Anyone who's interested in a membership, probably the easiest thing to do is go to our website. And our website is natlands.org, just like it sounds, N-A-T-L-A-N-D-S.org. Um, and if you want to visit the membership page, simply add a slash membership, and it'll take you right there. And we have lots of different options to join. We have an option for people under the age of 30. That's a little uh, cheaper. We have a general membership. We have some increasing levels, um, which you, you receive things like, you know, a water bottle with our logo and some other neat benefits. 
Love it. Well, let's make sure people understand just where Stone Lee is in the vicinity. So if they're coming to visit you, let's use maybe Philadelphia as a starting point. Where exactly is Stone Lee? How far do they have to drive and how can they find it? Is it easy to find on a map? Yeah, it's very easy. In fact, uh, Stone Lee is probably about 45 minutes from Center City. And it's in what's known as the Western Suburbs. So it's the first development once you leave the city limits. And it's in an area that's called the Main Line. And it was named for the Pennsylvania Railroad, uh, which, which came through here. And it's in the town of Villanova, which most people might know for Villanova University, which is also our neighbor right across the street. We're about uh, half a mile off Route 30, which is known locally as Lancaster Avenue. And that's probably the easiest way to find this, to drive on Lancaster Avenue towards Villanova from Philadelphia and, uh, and take a right onto Spring Mill Road. And then you'll run right into the property. You'll see signage on, on where to park. All right. Is there anything else we need to mention? I think you've been uh, very comprehensive. Yeah. Just that we're so excited to open. We're so thankful for everything that the Haas family has done for us. And I would encourage everyone to not only visit Stonely, but to learn more about natural lands and our organization and to visit some of the preserves because they're really spectacular as well. That's great. Well, I'm very excited for you guys. Ethan, you were a great pick with your career in public horticulture. And I certainly hope that people support your wonderful grand opening at Stonely, a natural garden that has stately trees, winding pathways, and then, of course, these beautiful lush gardens that the Haas family carefully stewarded over the decades. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you and just all good things on your grand opening. And this year is your first year as a public garden. Well, the pleasure has been all mine and you're you're a total professional and thank you so much for uh, having me on your show. We would love, again, if come down from Minnesota, visit us again. You know, maybe we can do, do a little shopping for containers. Who knows? Boy, but, uh, we would love to see you in the garden sometime. Well, that's an invitation. I'm, I'd love to take you up on. I, the pleasure would be mine. Thank you. So anyway, thank you so much, Ethan. This was a true pleasure. Enjoy the rest of your day. Go out, scoop some snow. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. Well, thank you so much again. And uh, enjoy the rest of your day, too. And uh, look forward to seeing the final product. Yeah, absolutely. We'll be in touch. All right. Thank you so much. All righty. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for our show today on Stone Lee, America's newest public garden, plus an in-depth chat with Ethan Kaufman about his vision and the plants he loves most in the garden. I hope today's show gave you a better understanding of natural gardens and a reinforced desire to incorporate more native plants into your garden. I would also like to make sure to invite you to become a member of Natural lands. You'll receive a year's worth of member benefits, plus your support will help further Natural Lands' mission to save open space, care for nature, and connect people to the outdoors. So please consider joining this worthwhile organization. Finally, I hope you get the chance to stop by Stone Lee, have a stroll about, enjoy the great work done by the folks dedicated to this amazing historic property, Dennis Kanakis, Laura Cruz, Cody Hutchins, Summer Sug, Jason Wirtz, and of course, 
Ethan Kaufman. Just a reminder that the show notes for this episode will be under the Still Growing Podcast page over at my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T. MAMA.com. I want to thank my team over at Podfly Productions, my editor and project manager, Eric Begay, and my copywriter, Ein Kadena. I'd also like to thank the women who make up my listener advisory board, Beth Engel, Beth Gardens in Illinois. She works at Griffin, a national brokerage firm, and one of the finest companies in horticultural service. And Beth is also a board member of the PPA, the Perennial Plant Association. Denise Pugh, Denise Gardens in North Mississippi and is a contributing writer to Mississippi Gardener Magazine. Patricia Chandler Newport. Patricia is the owner of Backyard Urban Gardens out of Kego Harbor, Michigan. Amy Von Atchen, Deb Gibson, and Peggy Ann Montgomery. Peggy Ann is the brand manager over at American Beauty's Native Plants, and she was featured back in episode 553, where we talked all about incorporating more native plants into your landscape. For my sign-off today, I leave you with this thought to help you grow. Expand your appreciation for gardens by visiting a public garden in your area this year. Bring a notebook, take some pictures with your phone, pack a picnic and bring a pillow. Spend some time, as Walt Whitman would say, to stand and sit among the garden, musing and rehabilitating your sane or sick spirit as near at peace as you can be. Have a great week, everyone. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a sixfootmama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow.